we can come to meditation practice and a retreat with many different motivations and intentions and even many different wishes about how we would like to see our practice develop or what we would like to be able to take home from a retreat. And in truth, is, I think, always something of a mystery about how our practice will deepen and develop. None of us really has a way of guaranteeing that from the beginning of a retreat. But no matter how our practice does develop, and really no matter what our wishes or intentions are as we start a retreat, one truth is, one reality is, that we all really start at the same place. And we all start in our endeavor, our effort to be present, to be here, to be awake. This is the, the kind of first step of every meditative practice. It's the first step in every way of deepening this foundation of learning to be present. So that's what I'd like to talk about tonight. There's an old Chinese saying that says, If I keep a green bough in my heart, then the singing bird will come. I think if meditation teaches us anything at all, it teaches us to live fully in the moment with a great wholeheartedness, a great sincerity, a great depth of connectedness. More and more we see in our practice and in our life that it's in being here, receptive, attentive, sensitive, that that's where we understand what it is to be moved by life, to be touched by the moment. And it's in being present that we start to learn, almost invisibly, but we start to learn some of the most transforming lessons that are born of being present. We see that it's a home of joy. It's a home of peace, of freedom. That it being present is the home of connectedness, of intimacy, of compassion. And I think we begin to sense in our practice that the singing bird really can rest in an open heart, and in an awakened mind. And that the green bough that really invites the singing bird to come lies in our willingness and our perhaps deepening capacity to see anew in each moment, to see ourselves, to see everyone who comes into our world, to see all the sights and sounds, to receive all the thoughts and feelings with eyes with eyes that are somehow unclouded by images, by comparisons, by fear, by wanting. My sense in practicing mindfulness meditation is that mindfulness in itself, in its deepest sense, 
is really a green bell. In the, this practice of meditation comes out of a discourse of the Buddha called the Satipatthana Sutta. And in this discourse or teaching of the Buddha, the Buddha speaks of mindfulness as being a direct path to liberating our hearts and minds. When I first read this sutta, I felt myself particularly glad and delighted when I, I came to the line in the sutta when the Buddha talks about time, you know, and he, he talks about if somebody practices path for seven years or for seven months or for seven weeks. And then there's this line, he says, and if someone really practices path wholeheartedly, even for seven days, that they would come to know complete and unshakable liberation. This seemed like very good news to me. Uh, I mean, seven days, you know, didn't seem like a very big chunk out of my life and it was going to leave me a lot of time to do other things that also interested me. Because I was less gladdened and delighted when I began to practice and appreciate the challenge of being mindful even for seven moments. Never mind seven days. Seven moments of really being mindful. I mean, if anyone experienced that today, you know, you're doing really, really well. I mean, certainly when I started my practice, of course there were moments when the green bough seemed to be present and moments when the singing bird came, you know, moments of of sensitivity, of stillness, of gladness, of, of opening. And those moments are important for all of us because they inspire us, they, they give us confidence in our practice. But it would cert- I certainly wouldn't at all pretend to say that they were the only moments I found. That there were a lot of moments, many more moments, when... You know, I just seem to kind of flounder around in this dense and dark uh, undergrowth of mind states and thoughts. And I really appreciate that Zen instruction, that Zen encouragement, where, you know, there's, there's this instruction when you sit, just sit, and when you walk, just walk, but above all, don't wobble. And, you know, I think that's, you know, there's, there's like one instruction we could take into a retreat to remember, don't wobble. I don't know how it is for you, but I certainly can reflect on many moments of wobbling. Sometimes it feels like the nature of our practice and the nature of our mind. If you, you kind of reflect back today, you probably see there's been a few wobbles here and there, times when, you know, you, you sit and you walk and there's, you know, this clear intention to be present, you know, to be awake. And sometimes within seconds, it's like this amnesia falls and we find ourselves either rehashing the past or rehearsing the future everywhere but present. I sense in our practice and our life sometimes we really have that intention to 
greet people, to greet our life, to greet the moment with as much loving kindness and sensitivity as it's possible for us to find. And again, sometimes that intention just easily seems to get hijacked by, you know, sometimes these very old and familiar tired patterns of judgment or resentment or resistance, and we quite forget about loving kindness and sensitivity. We practice, and, and for most of us, calmness and stillness seems like, seem like such attractive prospects. And then it feels sometimes like we almost have this kind of fatal, fatal attraction to agitation and preoccupation and, and obsession. But we learn slowly. We learn slowly over and over again in our practice about coming back and, and about what it means again to be present. We learn again and again in our practice those, those very kind of kindergarten lessons and yet most important lessons about Embracing this moment, finding peace, finding refuge in this moment. We can sense that difference that it makes in even the smallest places in our life to be present. You know, those those simple experiments that we do in a retreat that, you know, you can walk down a path in the grounds here And there's a way of walking down that path when our mind is so full, you know, we are so full, so bursting with thought, with preoccupations, that in a way the world really is not available to us. We don't see, we don't hear, we don't really touch. It's like lost moments. And there's another way of walking down that same path or even just pausing for a moment to 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 look wholeheartedly at just a flower in the garden or a leaf on a tree, or, or to listen wholeheartedly. And we can see that the power that attention has, that in a way, attention awakens the world, in, it seems. But really, it, it doesn't actually do that, but the world is available to us. The moment is available to us through the attention that we bring. We see differently. We feel differently. We touch differently. We begin to sense that really nowhere outside of this wholehearted presence do we live fully or find genuine depth. And that nowhere really outside of that wholeheartedness and connectedness do we really find that ease of being in our bodies, our minds, our hearts. Now, being present, I do appreciate, it's become something of a cliché, almost a mantra. You know, we hear the, read the books, we've heard the tapes, you know, we've listened to the slogans, you know, people put it on their bumpers of their cars, you know. Live this moment, be present, one moment at a time, moment-to-moment attentiveness. And I think sometimes it's kind of easy to translate being present into an image in our mind that implies a suspension 
of past and future. And people have, some people have this idea that if you are really present, past and future simply don't, uh, aren't there somehow. They, they disappear, you know, like we have no past and we have no future. Personally, I think that would make us somewhat dysfunctional in the world, and it also discounts the, the place that our, our past has in informing our present and all that we learn from it. And it kind of takes us out of operation in life, mostly. Some people, when they, they feel this kind of, you know, this sort of resistance or aversion to past and future, you know, like thoughts of past and future arise in their meditation, and they almost believe that they're making a mistake or doing something wrong. I think it's more in, important to see that this present moment really is kind of multidimensional. In the present, there is the presence of things past. They arise in this moment. The presence of things future arises in this moment. The presence of everything that is present can only be attended to through being awake in that multidimensional present moment. You sense in practice, in life, that the past in the present is really essentially a thought, a memory that carries certain associations with it of sometimes regret or blame or guilt or, or happiness. The future in the present is also a thought that carries its own load of associations of hope, anxiety, expectation, dread, Being present is not a negation of anything, but it's learning to be present, to be awake in the presence of all things. It is also learning to liberate through wakefulness our hearts and minds from anxiety and aversion. I feel that sometimes it's it's a misunderstanding to to believe that being present means that we're only going to have a continuum of pleasant thoughts, feelings, experiences. You know, I think this is probably a a kind of a letdown, (laughs) to say the least. Sometimes people think if I meditate enough or if I'm really good at my meditation, I'm only going to have pleasant things arise and I'm only going to have a pleasant moment and only going to have a pleasant life. We tend to invest, I think, being present with this notion of an idyllic and undisturbed world, which we, we, we translate or equate with being the absence of anything unpleasant, challenging, or disturbing. But being present is not this. Um... I know we don't put that on our literature. Um, and it's probably not, you know, it sounds strange coming from meditation teacher. You know, being present doesn't guarantee it's only pleasant. I mean, it's no surprise that we can feel frustrated in our meditation when we bring this underlying agenda that only being present, only certain things should happen. I should only have nice thoughts, good sensations, you know, 
nice experiences, not great feelings. Mindfulness is not a device to fix our life. It's not a device to fix our bodies, our minds, our hearts. It doesn't guarantee a present which is unchallenging. Mindfulness is not a vehicle to make life go away, but it is a vehicle for being awake in our lives. The um, The great teaching of transformation in meditation practice is that it's not about having a certain kind of experience, but it's understanding the possibilities of how we experience. In a sense, it is learning to move house. It's learning to relocate the center of our our kind of focus, our way of experiencing the moment. Often, what we do in our life without mindfulness, is that we tend to make our home in the contents of our experience. We tend to make our home in the thoughts, the feelings, the experiences, the sounds, to identify with them and define ourselves by them. What we do in mindfulness practice is we relocate. Instead of making our home in the contents of our experience, we learn to find a home in our capacity to see what we are experiencing. We learn to make our home in our capacity to be mindful of rather than in the contents. I can hardly begin to describe what a radical shift this is. Look what happens to us when we make our home in the contents of our mind, our hearts, or in the changing events of our world. First of all, we can't control those events, those thoughts, those sensations, those feelings that we've experienced today. So we see what happens when we make our home in them, an unpleasant sensation in the knee. When we make our home in that event, I become the sufferer almost immediately. I become a failure or fearful or resistant. Think what happens when a thought arises about an uncertain future. Making our home in that thought, I become anxious or agitated. Think what happens, you know, you're walking out of the meditation room and you smile at someone and you get a stony look in return. You make your home in that event, and I'm immediately unlovable. Or somehow I've done something wrong. The dining room might run out of your favorite tea. You make your home in that event, you know, and life is unfair to me. Somehow, you know, I I become a victim. It's the roller coaster that happens when we get lost in the contents of our minds and the events of our world. It's a very fragile, a very anxious way to live and be, to be always defining ourselves by what appears in the moment. But it's also a very optional struggle. That roller coaster is very optional. 
we can learn to be awake, to be present, to really locate ourselves in the seeing, in the mindfulness of what is. Our home is here, and it is the place where we find find an unshakable home. To be present really doesn't demand that anything goes away. You know, we can go through life demanding that things go away. I often think, like when I come here to Massachusetts in the summertime, and you know what it's like sometimes to go for a walk here in the daytime, in the woods, you know, maybe before you came here you had these lovely thoughts about, you know, this time in the countryside and walking in the woods, and it's really often quite a miserable experience, you know. Everything wants to eat you. And you can imagine, you know, you go through, imagine if you went through life with this mission to make all the horseflies and mosquitoes in Massachusetts go away. Most of us wouldn't consider such a way of living. You know, we think, of course, that's ridiculous. And yet we can actually have that underlying mission in our lives in so many different areas. I'll make it go away. I'll make it go away. Being present really asks for a different response. Instead of saying, I'm going to make everything go away or make anything go away, it asks us really to turn towards every single thing that arises in the moment. To turn towards it. To learn to release craving and aversion because they are the home of unease. They're the home of unrest. It's not just a theory, you know, you think of any moment when there's been craving today, we want something different to be happening than what is happening. You know, we want better thoughts, we want a different moment, we want more excitement, we want more pleasant sensations. It's like this journey back to what is, from all our ideas and fantasies of how things should be, that's a journey we make a thousand times in a single day. And sometimes it feels like hard work. You know, sometimes we feel, oh, do I have to do that again? You know, do I have to let go of that should? Do I have to let go of that want? You know, do I have to let go of that craving? But actually we start to see that it's a journey of happiness. That it's really a journey of liberation. Aversion is really just the other side of craving, you know, the pushing away of what is, the the kind of resistance that comes out in so many different forms of judgment, of dismissal, of aversion, of contractedness. It's the house of tension. It's it's the house of fear, reaching for what's not here, pushing away what is present, learning to surrender that tension. It's, It's a kind of releasing not only of the tension, but it's a releasing of ease and peace. It's one of the hardest lessons for us to learn in our life, in our practice, to turn towards what is, to embrace what is, not to make anything happen, not to get rid of anything. And yet we we begin to sense that possibility. And, And when we begin to turn to what is. It's almost recognizing that, in a way, each moment is complete unto itself. It offers us all that we need in that moment, that there's nothing really missing. 
I think it does take quite a sublime quality of patience. You know, that, that ocean of patience that is needed with ourself, our practice with the moment. Sometimes we're willing, of course, to, to be patient for a while. You know, it's easy. You know, I sometimes feel in my own life, I'm really going to be really patient as long as things don't last too long. In it. But then we can sense sometimes underlying the patience that there's this impatience of waiting. You know, like I'll be patient with this thought pattern, or I'll be patient with this fantasy trip, or I'll be patient with this aversion. But we're really just kind of waiting for it to be over. As, a, as this sense as if our happiness, our well being, is kind of always lying in the next moment. But that's not mindfulness practice. That's postponement practice. You know, when we think, when this is over, oh, I'm going to be so peaceful. You know, when I have a different roommate, when, you know, I have the right kind of tea, when, when, when I get rid of this thought or this preoccupation, then I'm going to be so mindful. And I'm going to be so peaceful and I'm going to be so happy. It's not mindfulness practice. And postponement practice is particularly particularly unsatisfying. What we look for in the next moment may actually already be here with us. Surrendering the aversion, surrendering the resistance, surrendering the wanting. Somehow we can find a way where we begin to soften, where we begin to open. And we find that that kind of inner balance and that that inner serenity and stillness that is really not making demands on ourselves or not making demands on the world. When we begin a retreat, we sit and we learn to be present first with our body and with our breathing. There are moments of connectedness, and then we're gone. And it's really important not to see those moments of being gone as somehow failures or, you know, frustrations. With insight practice, it's important to see where we go and what is the energy that moves that sort of disconnection in the moment. It's not when our attention leaves our breath and our bodies if we disappear. You know, we've gone somewhere. It's not just a kind of vacuum, although sometimes it can feel like a black hole we've fallen into. But we have gone somewhere. Those moments of being gone, they are in truth the lost moments that we're really endeavoring to reclaim in the practice. Sometimes we see when we're gone, we've we've made one of those endless journeys into our thoughts about the past. We're not lost in the past. We can be lost in thought. Now, sometimes that journey into the past, sometimes it's really, it's really delightful. You know, we have lots of lovely memories. And we can feel it's a kind of entertainment value or sometimes almost like a comfort food. Sometimes those, those journeys that we can sense that what's really the energy that's moving them is that that, that movement into the kind of delightful past It's a sort of substitute for a present that feels less than enough. So we try to make this substitution. 
It's a way of consoling ourselves. Of course, we see that we don't always have a choice, and sometimes we do the delightful memory, past visits, and sometimes a very much less delightful one. And we see ourselves tightening in those places. You know, we, we do the memories of, of the less happy past, the things we regret or feel ashamed about or, or uncomfortable with. And we see, too, that something is happening there. We see, too, that there is a way that we are being invited those moment, in those moments to learn how to make peace with the difficult to learn what it means to be able to let go. We can see sometimes when the mind is drawn into the past that tendency to tighten, to contract, and again to identify with the contents of our experience and thoughts. And then, of course, we breathe life into the past and we become a prisoner of it. Thought, of course, is really powerful. But what is more powerful is the authority that we give to thought to determine the quality of our present. Sometimes our attention leaves our breathing, our body, and we go to the future. Now here too, there can be entertainment value as we imagine a better moment that's going to come than the moment that we're in. But we see, too, that often those kind of forays, those journeys into the future, that they're anxiety-driven. We're rehearsing what we don't know so that it doesn't take us by surprise. We anticipate, we worry, we plan the thousand things that could happen in our life. Many times people tell me that even on the first day of a retreat, they're, they're getting ready for the conversations they're going to have when they leave a retreat, when they're reporting on their retreat experience. It hasn't even happened yet, and yet it's already being rehearsed. We can see the, the heroic effort that we make through thought to protect ourselves from uncertainty and surprise. Sometimes we try to banish a discontented moment by speculating upon a future happiness. When we leave the breath, the body, we can go to past, we can future, go to future. Sometimes we just get preoccupied with a whole range of thoughts in the present. We see that when we lose connection with simplicity in the present, that we also lose connection with peace and with calmness. When we reclaim our connection with simplicity, we also reclaim serenity. This is not just a theory. This is something we can explore easily in our practice. You know, there's a lot of ways we can get hooked into preoccupation and dwelling. And you you may have experienced it once or twice today. You know, when the mind suddenly gets into these full-blown preoccupation stories. How often the moment we enter into that range of being lost in preoccupation, serenity has gone. The moment that we remember to come back 
It is almost like reclaiming stillness. It's reclaiming calmness. And of course, one of the great skills that we learn in meditation practice is that we can come back. We can let go. We can find a way of being simpler in the present. That we can relieve ourselves sometimes of this responsibility of having to figure everything out and protect everything and control everything. We can find confidence just in being present. I often feel that anxiety is the subtle and yet often proximate cause for disconnection in our life. When we look carefully behind the wandering mind, we can often sense an underlying agitation, anxiety that gets fed into fantasies, plans, rehearsals. It seems like it's an ongoing occupation of our mind to keep trying to explain the moment to ourselves, trying to explain what is happening, to interpret things. It's almost as if control, explanation and control is our answer or antidote to feelings of anxiety or agitation. But of course, then we get more agitated. We see we can't even control our own thoughts, never mind the world. We sit and we walk with the simple intention of calming our minds and bodies. Earlier this year, I had the chance to do a little bit of a personal retreat. And I went into it with this one intention or or, or this memory of this one line that the Buddha uses about calming the formations. Calming the formations that calming the formations of the thoughts, calming the formations of the stories, of the constructions, that just to make that, that commitment, that intention, to calm the formations, not to get rid of them, not to fix them, not to control them, just to calm the formations just by being mindful of them, just by being attentive, just by being aware of them. And you can almost sense in the practice it begins to deepen what it means to calm the formations, to let go of that that hook of agitation, the hook of busyness, the hook of trying to explain, of, of trying to control, to calm the formations. And how much openness starts to come with calming the formations. It has something to do, obviously, with our willingness to let go. And our willingness to let go also has something to do with the kind of faith and confidence we have in ourselves. You know, the confidence to be, the confidence to deepen, the confidence to embrace what is. That is really what allows us to let go and to calm the formations. You know, this intention is a curious thing about, you know, really when we practice mindfulness, we're practicing letting go. You know, when you, when you come back, each time you come back to the breath, it's not because the breath is so important, but it's, it's letting go. You know, you're coming back from somewhere you, you could easily be lost or hooked. So each moment of returning to the breath is really a life training, a meditative training, 
in learning how to let go. And, and that's why meditation sometimes feels hard or challenging because that, that capacity to let go in our life is sometimes so contrary to, to the habits of, of wanting to control or fix or protect. But I don't think we should see that as a negative tension. It's, it's a creative tension to explore. You know, we, we see ourselves get lost, and sometimes that sets off whole new waves of anxiety of, oh, I'm not getting anywhere, you know, I'm not progressing. And then we see we can let go. We can just come back. That, that the kind of connection we're seeking for, the kind of presence we're seeking for, is really no further away from us than the next breath. It's right there. It's just waiting for us. There's a saying that says, only in a hut built for the moment can we live without fear. And in our practice, really that's what we're doing. We're learning to build a hut for the moment. We're building it through loving kindness, through attention, through mindfulness. This is our refuge. There's this curious balance, uh, this art in meditation of learning to really have a committed focus, but to let that committed focus live within a whole lot of spaciousness. And then we start to build are hot for the moment. You know, sometimes people can falter through a lack of effort in meditation, but it's also possible to try too hard. You know, we can have too, too much kind of forcing and striving and pushing with this underlying agenda of making something happen. And we get tense. We get, we get tight. There's such a wisdom in finding that spaciousness balanced with commitment of attention and effort. When we're patient with ourselves, when we're sensitive, when we bring appreciation, openness to our practice, then we bring a lot of light into that hut we're building in the present. And we really see attention protects our mind. Attention protects our minds from the the kind of psychic vandalism and sabotage we sometimes inflict on ourselves through preoccupation, obsession, and dwelling. That attention really protects our minds. It's a way of being kind to ourselves. Learning to be attentive is also a way of learning to withdraw our consent from sometimes these tired and familiar patterns of being lost and disconnected and obsessive. It's just withdrawing our consent. Most people, the first day of a retreat, are sometimes a little appalled and a little shocked to discover how much thinking really goes on. You know, that it creates our world of the moment endlessly. We can get so busy in our thoughts. And and I think it's not uncommon to have this experience in the first day of a retreat of it, just a kind of mental indigestion. 
you know, and it's almost as if we feel that our, our receptivity and our sensitivity is kind of a casualty of that mental indigestion. Now, attention is not a way of subduing or suppressing the mind, but it is a way of learning to calm it, to end the turmoil, the conflict, the agitation. Each moment we commit ourselves to being present, we are, in truth, just committing ourselves to our own well-being. You know, we're not committing ourselves to some ideology or, or some goal or some big achievement. We are just committing ourselves in that moment to the well-being of our own hearts and minds. Insight is part of building our hut in the present. In all wise attention, there is insight. You know, I don't think it's possible to find in our hearts the willingness to let go of so much of what preoccupies us. And this we see what's really unhelpful. It's, it's, I mean, it sounds obvious, but sometimes we just don't see that things are unhelpful. Now, there, there are a lot of thoughts that we have, a lot of ways of thinking that are really helpful. You know, they're creative, reflective, investigative, you know, necessary, helpful part of our life. But sometimes I sense that there's a whole lot that are kind of futile and fruitless. I've kind of picked up this new mantra this year, you know, which is, Futile, fruitless, and unhelpful. And trying to recognize, really, what is futile, fruitless, and unhelpful. And I've got this kind of short list. I'm sure you could add to it. But there's a lot of things that are kind of futile, fruitless, and unhelpful. Um, Anxiety-driven thought, you know, judgment about ourselves and others. I mean, I don't see much mileage in it. Myself, you know, I don't think it produces very much that's helpful. Guilt. Guilt, I I mean, anybody benefit? It's um, rehearsal of the future. Mostly it's kind of a non-starter. Obsession. I mean, we could go on here. You know, I think we could, it's, sometimes it's helpful to make our own short list of what is futile, fruitless, and unhelpful. It's not that it's bad or wrong. It just really doesn't serve our well-being. And sometimes it's kind of a habit. You know, the, the Tibetan word for samsara, I think, is, is wandering in a circle. Wandering in a circle. And mostly what's futile, fruitless, and unhelpful is kind of wandering in a circle. And, of course, every time we wander in the circle, the kind of groove gets deeper and deeper and deeper until pretty much we've forgotten that there's anything outside of that circle. And I think what meditation practice, what mindfulness practice does, it reminds us of a much bigger circle. You know, there's a, there's a lot of other pathways we can walk. But we need to see what is, without judgment, what is unhelpful, what doesn't serve us well then we can sense what does serve us well. We can begin to get a feeling, really, for what does serve us well. Certainly being awake serves us well. Being attentive serves us well. But attention just doesn't come out of the blue or because we want it to. Attention comes out of interest. 
When there's interest, energy and attention naturally follow. So we might say that the starting place for meditation is being aware of what interests us, what motivates us, what inspires us. You know, if, if, if we are really interested in being awake, if we're really interested in deepening, if we're interested in sensitivity, in connectedness, if we're interested in liberation, if we're interested in compassion, then the energy and the attention follow very naturally and very organically. You know, we don't have to try to be attentive. So sometimes I think when, when we find ourselves forcing in meditation, trying to force our, our attention, it's helpful to take a step back and to remember what it is that really motivates us, what it is that really inspires us. Because that following in the wake of that interest will come an attention that starts to feel very natural, very wholehearted. There is a cartoon I have come across that I love dearly. It's a Zen cartoon where a young monk has just asked an older monk a question. And this older monk has turned to the young monk with this puzzled look on his face. And he says, nothing comes next, this is it. So I would really encourage you to take that into your retreat. Nothing comes next, this is it. You know, it may be for seven days you'll have a wandering mind. You know, maybe for seven days you'll have a knee that aches. You know, maybe for seven days you'll have a roommate you don't care for that deeply. You know, maybe for seven days you'll be hot or your mind will be agitated. Who knows? What if nothing comes next? And this is it. Then I think, sensing that, I think we really actually understand what meditation is all about. Because then we, 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 we have really, it seems, limited choices. We can either just totally close down and block it out, or we can turn towards this. We can turn towards what is. We can turn towards this moment and begin to sense a kind of change of heart and change of mind that is really being invited. The Buddha called being present one fortunate attachment. And there's a piece in the discourses when he speaks about this fortunate attachment. He says, let not a person revive the past or on their future build their hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future yet to be reached. Instead, with insight, see each presently arisen moment. Know it and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort is made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep his hearts away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is they, the peaceful sages said, who has one fortunate attachment. We have just a couple of moments quietly together. 